From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. I haven't decided how I'm going to say these episodes now that we're in the triple digits. I know. It really (laughs) is kind of awkward, but I feel like we're going to come uh, full circle with it, and we're going to make the best of it. Oh, absolutely. And and we do hope that everyone who is celebrating had a very happy um, Mother's Day out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and then, uh, oh, and well, on the day of this recording, uh, for folks, we're going to take you backstage. Craig and I tend to record Tuesday evenings. And of course, today, it was announced the passing of, I think, a comedy genius and legend i think greg craig craig i don't know who i'm talking to you'll agree tim conway um passed away it's a huge huge loss yeah i i figured something was up when they had that carol burnett reunion and he was not a part of it and so i thought he must have been in ill health and they and they said he wasn't able to travel and um but of course I remember him from way back, McHale's Navy, you know, although I I don't believe it was first run, but I remember my father taking me to the St. Francis Theater on Market Street before it declined and became a porn theater. Um, It was once a really nice theater, and we saw McHale's Navy joins the army. I think that's what it was. Yeah. And it was when they made a movie, and it was just so much fun, and I was just amazed my father took me to a film. But um, anyway, but I, I but I watched it in syndication. It was one of those you know film TV shows that was on like every night. Yeah, and I I mean I watched him on many things. So uh, you know, obviously his involvement with the the Disney movies that he made, uh, Apple Dumpling Gang, obviously mm-hmm. uh, it goes without saying. And um, but he, even beyond that, he was on. He was one of those people who popped up on TV shows mm-hmm. for a he guest spot. He was on spot. Coach. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah, no. Coach. Um, there was uh, the the one show he did, I think it was um, with, with um, God, why am I really struggling on it? Dick Van Dyke's brother, Jerry Van Dyke. Oh, Jerry Van Dyke. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It, I think it was uh, with Mike O'Malley and all of that. I think he he had a little guest spot on that. I could be completely wrong. It, it wasn't still standing. It was one of those ones in the '90s that like I grew up on. But um, it, it, Tim Conway was like he he was one of those guys who just popped up on everything, everything mm-hmm. at all. So so if you didn't know him from the heyday, you know him from something in the '90s. Like he was that sitcom king who just literally would pop up in everything. And at the very least, you know him from watching infomercials at night where they're promoting like, oh, buy the Carol Burnett show on mm-hmm. on DVD and, you know, see all the classic people who are on that, including Tim Conway. Um, it's it, it's a huge loss. But on the Disney side, of course, from from the 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 movies that he starred in uh, with the oh, Walt yeah. Disney Company and a good amount. Oh yeah, the Shaggy DA, the world's greatest athlete. He did voices. He was Mr. Griff in the Hercules TV series, and he was um, Sheriff Sniffer in the Air Buddy series. Well, I mean, we can forget about that. (laughs) But I remember him when I was like ten years old. He was on a very short-lived series called Rango, 
where he was like this Texas Ranger who like he, he would ride his horse backwards, and he had the most erudite um, sidekick who was a Native American and um, who spoke better English than like anyone on the show, and uh, and um, it was it was hilarious because I I had to first of all it got canceled right away I think a TV Guide said out of the fifty worst television programs ever it was number forty seven as a ten year old I loved this show I just laughed and laughed and laughed and so I had to watch there so there was a clip from him on YouTube and I watched it and I realized this was basically one long Carol Burnett comedy sketch for over 20 minutes. That's basically what it was. It was all his shticks and pratfalls and his strange little quirks that he had and everything stretched out into this episodic TV series, which is a really hard thing to carry off. I still found it hilarious. But, um, oh no! And I you know. I looked it up in the time while you were talking. Um, the show that I was kind of uh, hinting at here and there was um, Yes Dear. So it was not a great show, but that did not change the fact that it did happen. <laughs> um, so it's he he was a huge 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 impact on uh, on on the comedy world. I I can even remember um, the the episode of, of the Drew Carey show that he was on that just like resonated with me for the longest time. He was one of those people. Anytime you saw him pop up, it's just, you knew you were in for a special, uh, a special half an hour or hour or however long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course I grew up on the Carol Burnett show. So, um, we I'm would jealous. watch yeah. um, every Saturday, watch that show. Oh, it was, it's just hilarious. You're very lucky. Yeah. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. So he will definitely be missed. So everybody has to drag out their their copies of the Apple Dumpling Gang and or what was was he in Hot Lead and Cold Feet? I and all that too. I think he was. He yeah. was in that too. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, um. I know. I know. Definitely. Obviously, Apple Dumpling Gang. Um. And uh, that's that's the one who, that's sticking out for the me the most and. I'm trying um, world's greatest athlete. Mm-hmm. I know I remember mm-hmm. that one. Yeah, he was Milo Jackson yeah. in that one. Beyond yeah. that, I'm kind of blank and, and not not anything against his career, obviously, but uh, it's there's a lot of famous people out there. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so hope you rest in peace and thank you for many decades yes. of laughter. Now, now, speaking of of another film that I know will bring you joy, the teaser trailer for Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, dropped. Okay, well, I'll see you next week. (laughs) I don't know. I I thought, does this have anything to do with the previous film? Because she was so sweet and adorable and lovey and... <laughs> and what happened here? And and why is she wearing her underwear in part of this film? What I feel to her like costume. Who was trying to test my patience with this? <laughs> like legitimately, what uh, we we all both uh, both you and I know what were they trying to do with this? But now it's like literally, what are they trying to do to waste our time? It's I'm at a loss for words. I'm I'm angry angry that in this day and age when when we have to have price cuts on the most basic things in theme parks that we can still let something like this just go forth without <laughs> any issue jeez louise oh but um i sure hope though they don't have a costume maleficent now one of those outfits walking around the park because you're gonna have to cover the little tyke's eyes I mean, oh my I'm not. goodness! It's, they they have to see it. They have to deal with it, and I'm leaving it at that. Oh, I I don't know. And you know, I'm sitting there thinking: Are these all scenes from the last film? Are they, they, it all looked so familiar to me. I don't know why. Yeah. Well, that's that's literally what Kylie said as we were watching the trailer for the new movie. She's like, "Didn't this already come out?" And I said, "Well, it's a sequel." And she's like, okay, 
didn't this already come out? Yeah. And if if my wife, who hasn't seen the first movie in its entirety, thinks that this movie already came out, what is the average person supposed to think? I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, but I, I I'm I'm not buying a ticket for opening night <laughs> i will not buy a ticket for opening weekend i will see it i will see it begrudgingly hopefully i will see it via a free screening by disney because that would make me feel a lot better about it and although we try to go out of our way and strive to say that we don't pay for the things that we review i'm mm-hmm. happy to say that this is one thing if disney lets me review it on their dime i will give you my honest opinion regardless of the fact of whether or not I, I paid for it. And maybe I'll throw them a 20, just so I can tell you how much of a piece of crap it is. Oh, well, I'm buying popcorn for that review. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, that's, I, I need to buy something to throw it away out of anger. So, whether it's popcorn or a drink. Yeah. Well, anyway, well, anyway, good, good luck, Maleficent. Um, anyway, uh, this well, depending upon when you're listening to this show, you ha- you may have already bumped into me at Disneyland because I will be there on Saturday, May 18th. Um, be bopping around. I haven't been there in a while, so I'm looking forward to seeing all kinds of things there. And then May 19th, this is it, kids. Last chance to sign up for the Waltland bus tour with Bob Gurr. Yeah, you know, this is part of our hundredth episode celebration, May nineteenth. So you want to go to waltland.com and in the little discount code field or whatever it is, promo code field, um, enter unplugged, all lowercase letters, to sign up and get your discount. You know where you're connecting with Walter, one of your Diz shirts for our group photo, and. And also on this weekend, Bob is going to have his brand new book, so that uh, all about his his other stories, all his many, <laughs> and he has many of them that he will autograph at Walt's barn um, for us. So anyway, so we are going to. So it's going to be a fun weekend. So I hope to see you all there. So I'm jealous I can't be there. I know. Well, you know what? You'll have to come out, and then we'll do the tour again. Exactly. It'll be interesting. It's, I have a feeling that's one of those things where, where, where Bob has different stories every time. Slightly different stories. Because he has yeah. lived such a full life. Too many stories. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, now, um, speaking of which, you know, last week we celebrated our 100th episode with Disney legend and Imagineer Bob Gurr who was um, answering your questions. And Bob returns this week to answer more listener questions. So let's see if your question was answered in this week's episode. I'm going to go with this one from Emmett. So I I think you probably have, have some memory of it, but like at the height of Disneyland's construction and such, uh, can you kind of walk us through what your daily routine was, like when, what time you got up, what your commute was like, what what you would do on an average day? I never had an average day. <laughs> I knew that was going to be the answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing. If, you, if you're talking about when Disney is under construction, my time was uh, scattered between being um, – in the machine shop drafting room, draw, making drawings, or down in the uh, shops where we're uh, making stuff, or over in a sound stage where we're building monorail trains, or driving down the uh, Santa Ana Freeway several times a week and going into the park to uh, uh, follow up with all the stuff that I'm designing that has to fit something that's you know, they're pouring concrete and laying the pipe and putting stuff in. And is it all going to interface with what we're building up, up in Burbank? So this was uh, back and forth all the time. Um, there was no routine day at, that, that I can ever, I can ever think of. Everything was like, I obviously I got up in the morning and I, you know, I went over to the uh, studio, you know, like seven thirty or eight. And it was like, 
I thought I was going to resume what I was doing yesterday. Oh, no, here's something else. It's red hot. Oh, we got to jump on this. Oh, the shop just called. Oh, get a company car and go to Disneyland immediately and meet somebody down there. They they got something you got to solve. As soon as I get down there, the phone's ringing. Oh, get back to the studio. Oh, on the way back, stop at a vendor. The vendor has something. We got we to gotta make a decision. <laughs> it's It's that. It's. That's the way it went. Now, was that a way that you you still feel like you live because you got used to it, or, or are you on a, a routine nowadays? I, I No, I think the person that just asked this question has never been on the war. <laughs> Could be. Well, I, I man, just... that, that 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 answer sure got a lot of silence. <laughs> well, well, we we thought you were going to follow up with that. I think. <laughs> so. Well, well, there was a lot going on at the studio, and folks really think about it because you're building Disneyland, something that had never been constructed, but. Sleeping Beauty is underway, plus, you know, production, you know, f- planning on f- you know, future um, animated films. T- the television show is is gearing up. The uh, There's a number of live action films in production. And people forget that so much of Disneyland was built on the studio lot and then transported over. Uh, so it must have been just a whirlwind of activity the moment you set foot on that on there uh yeah as you know i do my uh walt disney um history trail bus tour uh every you know every mostly every um, third sunday of the, of the month mm-hmm. and as i drive people around on the bus and i tell the stories and then when i get over to the studio which is towards right at the end of the tour as i describe it i i'm still in my mind i see that Oh, this was the wildest, funnest place. I could not imagine everything that's going on there. Because on one hand, I don't know don't know anything about movies, but they had a back lot, and it was always full of uh, dirt and old saloons and, and horses and cowboys running around and smoke and dust and noise. And I'd spend my lunch hour out there with my brown bag because it was the most fascinating thing to see. But then I could also walk around and they um, sneak into the uh, sound stages where they're actually making, oh, it's real movies, oh, movie sets. Look at all this stuff, you know, and I do that anytime I had a, had a spare minute. And then I talk to the movie people and they say, what are you doing? This is a movie studio. Why are you building a monorail in it? <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. the movie people couldn't understand what in the world we, the Disneyland people, were doing. Mm-hmm. You're building monorails and and a steamboat and you know all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Even when I went there in October of 1954, they showed me a soundstage where the um, uh, Twenty Thousand Leaks, uh, uh, the fight with the squid, had uh, been done. It was in that stage, and here's the superstructure of the uh, Mark Twain steamboat, and here's uh, all the uh, railroad cars for the Disneyland passenger train all being built there. Mm-hmm. Which turned out to be the same soundstage we we built the uh, Mark One monorail in. Just amazing, and, and Walt orchestrated. He he just knew what was going on. He just must have been like a little kid in a candy jo- a candy shop as he walked through the studio. Absolutely, yeah. Because you see, you saw him everywhere uh, all, all the time. Um, and, you know, and everybody just accepted that, well, you know, Walt's walking around all the time. You know, sometimes, you know, you, you might want to ask him a question. And usually he might ask you a question, uh, but you didn't want to really stop him or anything because he was wandering around. But he was just a, a permanent fixture out in that back lot all the time. Oh, hmm. that. Oh, gosh, he just must have just been so excited. <laughs> and thinking of a million other things he wanted to do at the same time. <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, yeah. The key thing about Walt was, you know, people ask ask me, they always say, "What was Walt really like?" And I'd have to describe it this way. Let's say uh, you and your buddies are you think like used car dealers. Uh, you you stand around where we got about a 10 minute gap of nothing happening. You know, typically like we got off the company plane and the, and the Lincoln car never didn't get there in time. So we're standing there. Um, 
and use car a lot thinking men always they're very conventional they'll always think of a dirty joke and then they'll look at somebody and say say did you ever hear the one about you know that's conventional mid-america and the minute i saw guys do that and walt standing there the look on walt's face and that eyebrow that shoots up (laughs) with the most awful glare what you just did as you started to tell your story, you just proved to Walt that your mind is not 100 percent 24 hours a day on his project. Mm-hmm. It's a fatal, a fatal thing. You never did it again. But the bystanders saw all that. They saw it, and so they never made the same mistake. But what that what that illustrates is Walt. His mind was constantly on everything, and especially stuff that he might do years in the future. And you do not interrupt him with a used car salesman dirty joke because there's a 10 minutes with nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Although then we hear stories, too, that there are sort of a lot of hijinks and shenanigans over in the animation building. And, and Walt understood that they were under a lot of pressure too, and they needed to blow off steam a little. So, um, well, the, the, the animators that I, I primarily knew, uh, Ward Kimmel extremely well because I, I knew him years before I ever went to the studio because it, we, you know, we were in the same uh, collector car club. And of course he was very dear friends with the guy that was publishing my books, you know, so it was a natural to, you know, know Ward very well and go over to his house a lot. Um, but animators, if you visualize cartoons of the 20s and the 30s, there were usually a little short films and they were a string of gags. Uh, gags is the correct word because um, every animation in a way were, were all sight because before sound came along, you were completely um, um, entertained by um actions that you would see with your eyes, but without language and without sound. So, so the motions of people or animals or situations um, are gags. So you, in that era, you had a lot of guys that are gag men and gag men are a little bit like uh, uh, writers for uh, radio programs in the thirties and the forties. They, they create, uh, sight gags or sound gags in the case of, of uh, radio, uh, and you string them together and make a movie out of it. Uh, today, people can't visualize anybody ever work like that. But Walt knew the value, and he always looked for these guys. And these guys, almost no girls, these guys, I think a lot of them were crazy. A lot of them had, um, as you learn some of your history, they had. Um, um, physical behaviors that uh, you would not want anybody to know. Um, it, it just, you know, but Walt knew about them, you know, whether it was alcohol or womenizing or whatever it was, he looked the other way because he saw the value of that kind of a mind that would be kind of a, a, a wild character is the very one that could come up with the gags all about life that you could thread into a short movie. So um, everybody kind of understood that, that Walt just sort of tolerated everybody and never made, and never raised a scene. I only had uh, two instances where um, somebody told me that, uh, well, sometimes it got a little rough because uh, some of the guys drink a lot. And they went down to Alphonse's on Riverside Drive, and they'd have three martinis, and they'd come back, and they had too much. So one of the fellas fell asleep on, uh, behind the sofa against the wall where the storyboards were and Walt saw the guy, uh, the guy's head there. And, um, uh, so as he was walking along with the storyboard to talk about the story more, he kept walking up and accidentally kicking the guy in the head. Uh, and of course the guy couldn't move and everybody knew Walt was kicking him. <laughs> so uh, a lot of stuff, you know, Walt understood, but, but he'd do that. In fact, uh, only another time, there was a guy who had built a, a, a Conestoga wagon, and he was very proud of a little, you know, little model, tabletop model. And in a storyboard meeting, the guy kept saying, uh, well, Walt, look what, look what I just built. 
and Walt, when I was not the subject, you know, we're, we're talking about the story, not your Conestoga wagon. And finally, uh, uh, you know, I said, well, don't you get, at least give me an E for effort. And, um, I'll give you S for another word. <laughs> and that, that ended the story right there. And, but the other guys around there, they, they could see that, boy, don't ever push uh, Walt like that with your own kind of an agenda, even though you think you're a clever gag man, because mm-hmm. Walt, will, Walt will stop you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those are good stories. Thank you. And some good insights into Walt there. So. Um, Oh, I, I guess I think it's mine now. It is, yes. It's, okay, I'm going to head into the engineering and imagineering category. Bazina asked, as an engineer, I'd be interested to know what was the most unusual test you performed to prove out one of your designs? The most unusual test? Wow, boy, there were so many things we had to do. Let, give, me a, give me a moment. I'm trying to think. What were some of the stuff that was really, really, really tricky? I think. Okay, well, I'll give you I'll give you one here. It happened a little bit later when we were redesigning the uh, the Mark One monorail. We had to do a lot of testing on the beamway at night with a what we called a test rig that uh, looked at a different kind of suspension between the wheels and the, and the body structure. And the company had hired a um, a consultant at Lockheed, a Lockheed uh, engineer. And the guy was uh, quite a uh, hated character, but later was very famous. And he um, he was forcing us to help him engineer his design of a new monorail suspension. And we had to do that uh, on the graveyard shift at night. And this was very inconvenient to drive down there in the middle of the night. Uh, to test this this uh, consultant's idea, which really didn't look like it was ever going to work, and the uh, the test was very futile. I mean, it was like I was learning a lot about what you're trying to do, but the guy was so desperate to get his data to work well, he reached out and grabbed part of the mechanism and kind of damped it a little bit with his hands, in order to make the recordings uh, be a little bit better. And he used those recordings the next day to convince uh, Wet Enterprises, you know, Walt's Wet Enterprises, that he was making progress. And I was infuriated with the idea a guy would fake recordings of tests, which you'd never, never do. You, The reason you test something is you're trying to find out, is this sucker going to work or not? And if you interfere by by physically interfering but the test result, that is as dishonest as it comes. And, it, and of course, it led to uh, extremely bad situations in the following weeks. But uh, as testing goes, that was the weirdest, weirdest uh, test uh, situation. That went on for about six months. That's a story that that's a question never been asked, and that's a story that's never been told. Oh, Boy, oh, you guys got go. something yeah. that's completely new here. Wow. There you go. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, no, I'll, and let me qualify that. The guy that uh, was the uh, with the bad guy that was uh, faking the uh, uh, faking the test, he later turned out to be the original designer of the uh, Lockheed F-17A, the first stealth fighter. If you if you guys know what the F-117A is, it, it's the weirdest looking thing you've ever seen. It's all like a bunch of flat facets, like it was made out of cardboard or something. Mm-hmm. He came up with the idea that you could actually have a stealth airplane, and it was impossible to fly. And all he said was, "Throw it to the software guys; they'll force the airplane to learn to fly." But that's the one that will work, and it that does. And that guy proved his worth to America later after he did fake tests for us. <laughs> Well, at least there was a positive outcome with his career. <laughs> yes, I uh, I highly respect the man in history now. Good. Gosh. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel terrible now that I have to follow up uh, from a first-time question, but I have to ask this one from uh, – 
from a personal standpoint too, even though it was uh, Kevin who asked it, but I'm a huge Universal fan. So uh, can you at least share a little bit of your experience working on the King Kong animatronic? King Kong over sure. at Universal Hollywood? Sure. Fire away. Yeah, well, did you have a good experience with it? Was it was it a challenge? No. Was uh, or was it just another job? Oh no 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 no! Universal is an entirely uh, let's say Universal Studios tour. Let's say an entirely different company than uh, say a, a Disneyland from the standpoint that uh, Disney is really uh, they're they're quite conservative at heart. There's a lot of things that would be interesting to do that they kind of shy away from because it might be a little on the risky side. Um, Universal is completely the other way around. The attitude that they had there was, by golly, we've got an exciting idea, and by gosh, we're going to do it, and we're going to find people that are going to do it for us. So it was an environment that I absolutely thrived in because uh, everything they were trying to do was completely crazy. And it was being done on a low budget, and it was being done on a completely impossible time schedule. All of those aspects I dearly loved, because what it meant now was, compared to uh, the previous environment in the later years at Disney, where, which became a sort of slow, plotting, very, very careful, very methodical, lots and lots of people involved. At Universal, it was uh, the wild, wild west. And the actual people that work there, particularly uh, some of the uh, project managers or the, the people that manage construction, one guy in particular, the guy's name was Larry Lester, a Vietnam, a Vietnam helicopter pilot, you know, uh, the kind of a guy that um, he got things done so fast and he'd irritate everybody. But at the end of the day, you weren't mad. Um, and we moved so fast. Decisions were being made on the spot without meetings. Um, it was sort of like Walt's early days was what um, the 80s were like uh, at Universal Studios. I'm I'm sad that I never got to see it. So obviously it was, it, it was amazing. It, it was so sad that it burned down. Yeah, well, I did a number of jobs for him. We had the 2010 show. I, I did, did, did those kind of shows. Uh, of course, uh, you know, the King Kong, we did several of them with, with it. You know, I did a job on the Red Sea. We did all kinds of stuff with them. That was, they were such a fascinating group to work with. Still today, I admire them because uh, a couple of years ago, I had a two-hour tour before opening of the Harry Potter attraction in, in Hollywood. It is by far the most expensive, the most beautifully engineered, the most precisely engineered and precisely built attraction I have ever seen in my life uh, from the uh, from all the backstage side. Um, I admire Universal today because they've done what now three three uh, 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 Harry Potter attractions that are the absolute tops in design integrity and um, and technology and operations. Uh, the company is, is to be admired so much. That that makes me happy. Uh, I, I I was going to ask you about it just a little bit slyly there, but you you kind of brought it up. I I spent uh, about two years working at Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey uh, with the obviously the attraction you're talking about with the Kuka Robotics um, and mm-hmm. like that. Yep. It, it blew me away. Like being uh, obvious, I didn't. I wasn't in the design and I have nothing to do with KUKA, but uh, just as a a front of house uh, team member there, I I got to work it and I got to drive it uh, every now and then and and, and use all that technology. And it, it blows me away. Like I, I've, I've run roller coasters before I've run that attraction. And, and I was hoping that you, you have gone backstage and, and seen how it works. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you yes. did, and you think so highly of it because it is such yeah. an amazing design. Yeah, especially the uh, general public would ever understand that you, you have a box with four people in it, and the box is at the end of this great big kooka machine throwing it around in space, 
and it's running on a gorgeous chassis and that whole thing just for four people, that is a million dollar vehicle. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of them, a whole bunch of them in the ride. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no. It's uh, I think uh, when all of them are running at one time, it can be up to fifty-two all at once. And yeah, very it, rare that it, they ever have them all some, running. But yeah. yeah, but going back to the King Kong days, uh, they were full so fast at their decision making, and the help that I would get, everything I wanted to do was just. It was incredible. It was some of those some of the best uh, years I ever had in designing was uh, with Universal. Excellent. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Well, I have a question. Mike Mike's question is is another project that fascinated me, and I read all about it in your book, and I've seen it a number of times. And he wants to know what were the biggest technical challenges you faced with the Treasure Island pirate ship battle? And for folks who don't know, this is in Las Vegas. Oh no! The Treasure Island never never was a challenge. It was a great big wild machine, compl- astounded, completely uh, astounding. You know, because it was something that came out of Steve Wynn's mind. He had this idea, what he wanted to do exactly, and then uh, you know, I'm with the two guys from uh, Technifex and myself. We went up there, and, and he says, "Well, who's going to design and build this thing?" And we put our hands up, and we got the job. No handshake, no boilerplate, no signature, no nothing. We just started. And as we went along on the job, uh, we had great cooperation with uh, all of the manufacturers and all of the vendors. Uh, The sinking ship itself, uh, it had some weird configurations, but when you would reduce everything down to its smallest part, it was conventional engineering. There was nothing... uh, there wasn't anything we were doing that said, "Oh, this is uh, earth shaking and and uh, and groundbreaking and leading edge." No, the bits and the pieces were conventional, store bought like stuff. But in the main, when you back off and look at the entire thing, you've got this ship that moves 180 feet, gets in a big fire, and it sinks on fire, and it goes down. The good thing is, in the show, the fire put the the fire got put out when the ship sank, um, and then the ship came back up, and the captain came back with it, and then we put it back and, and reset the show. It was one of those mind-blowing things, but if you'd walk people through the individual things I designed and engineered and why they were, it, it, it was very, very conventional. So there was no challenge. Hmm. But it, it is amazing to watch. <laughs> Yes, if you see uh, today, if you look at old uh, uh, home movies or home videos that people made of the thing, it was like, wow, I mean, there's a blast of flame and everything going on, and there's water shaking and everything, and cannonballs flying, and people yelling at one another, and oh my goodness, the British Navy got sunk by the pirates. <laughs> it was it was a crazy 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 thing but it was uh it was such an enjoyable job it just moved along at a terrific pace just we didn't have the we didn't have anything we tested that uh that surprised us at anything okay good. we just had a lot of we just had a lot of people that were so good at what they did with all of their individual things that they had to do, basically, to fulfill my overall engineering design for it. Well, I have a new question from Mandy, so I'm going to change this up slightly uh, to get it across, but... Mandy points out with the advancement of stuff like SpaceX and other technologies, is there any current uh, advancement in engineering that that has you excited or anyone that you, you know of that's that's on the cusp that's about to be uh, that's about to break through in engineering that has you excited? Oh man, you have just given me the gigantic question. <laughs> the, the reason I'm la- the reason I'm laughing is you should have figured out by now by now that I I am so interested in so many things permanently. Everything to do with well, it, this is such a broad area. Let's say everything to do with 
the propulsion of land transportation. Uh, we're at the cusp right now of autonomous cars, electric cars, and possibly some hydrogen cars and trucks. It is a a gigantic canyon of risk we're facing right now. No one knows how it's going to come out. All of the automobile companies worldwide are shaking in their boots because this transition is coming so fast. They're not sure where they should invest their money, where they should put their engineering effort. And some people are holding back and some people are going at complete full speed. Some of them are going at such full speed, it looks like hopeless hype. The fact that a lot of this in the next two to three years will begin to gel and show that some stuff is way too far out, some stuff really is hype, and some other stuff is absolutely going to be totally fabulous. I follow the automotive industry worldwide every morning. I have a number of sites I go to to stay on top of all of the original ideas that are going, and especially the uh, the, the business side of it, because we're talking about literally billions of dollars that might go down a rat hole of technology that, that backfired and didn't work. We're also looking at billions of technology that will be surprisingly outstanding and logical in the next two or three years. Uh, I have never seen an era of technology that is both inspiring and frightening as much as this is at the moment. Aircraft are a little bit different. Aircraft plot along on a, on a rather slow, a slow development. Uh, so why airplanes are sort of, you know, sort of my big passion, but, uh, it is, it's a little bit more predictable where surface transport to do with petroleum and moving away from petroleum is, uh, the big technological, um, it's full of wild cards in all directions. And I am so fascinated and I'm disappointed that I won't live to be 110 and see how it comes out. You don't know. Are you you don't know, Bob. You don't know that, Bob. <laughs> so look at all the look at all the um the, the technology going into healthcare. You you could easily be around. Yeah, healthcare is the very uh, well, you, well, the other side of healthcare is yes, all this is absolutely terrific, but unfortunately, uh for a great number of reasons, healthcare the the rate of Price increase of healthcare, both the the machinery, the chemistry, and the physical services, all of it is very, very grand. But we are way up on a steep slope now of cost that increase way beyond the increase in uh, family earnings, and we are gradually getting into a period of. When you have a catastrophic thing in your family and you only have so much money, you will face the choice, your money or your life. Mm -hmm. It's going to become that hard. And a curious thing, this, this is just my own opinion, uh, you look at the medical care systems in so many different countries, and some of them, they, they work extremely well, but the country companies are a little bit smaller. Um, and in a way, the United States really needs good health care. And every decade, it gets further away from ever having good health care. It's the strangest, strangest, slow change of how people think, how money is spent, how companies work. But in the middle of all that, we have the most fantastic technology of understanding health care and understanding the human genome and everything that can be so perverse and so far advanced and so simple, and it's coming really, really fast. I just love all of it. Well, there are still more questions for Bob to answer, so he will be back with us next week to answer even more listener questions. But now it's time to challenge Craig with This Week in Disney History for the week of May 19th. So, Craig, are you all set for this week? I feel comfortable. 
Oh, that's good. Is that because you're sitting comfortably or? Mostly, yeah. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Well, all right, let's start. This week, there's some tough ones in here. So, um, because it was, it, the whole week it was like all these people who passed away. I thought I could only take so much. Wonderful. Of so I, 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 I had to steer clear of just most of those. Anyway. Okay, so May 19th, on May 19th, 1939, a Walt Disney cartoon becomes the very first cartoon to be broadcast on an American television station. What is the name of this sort of land-breaking cartoon, groundbreaking cartoon? I have no idea. Well, it's a Donald Duck cartoon. I'll give you that hint. That has no effect on me. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, it's Donald's Cousin Gus. And the interesting thing is it was released to theaters on May 19th, 1939, and broadcast on NBC's experimental station W2XBS. Doesn't that sound like a a space station or something? And and thank you for the hint. It meant absolutely nothing, but thank you. You're welcome. Um, In this short, Donald's cousin Gus arrives with an inexhaustible appetite and a bottomless stomach. I first saw this on the old Disney Channel when they used to run really quality programming. And they uh, they, uh, would run the old, old, you know, Mickey and Donald and Goofy cartoon shorts. You know, a whole blocks of them. Yeah. I mean, it sounds familiar. It just... Yeah. I would not have guessed the like the first in that, but yeah, no, I wouldn't have either, and I had no idea it had been broadcast on a television station. So, but that is cool. It was a Disney cartoon. It was the very first cartoon, of course. So, yeah. Okay, May twentieth. Which four attractions made their debut at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom on May twentieth, nineteen seventy three? Oh. Um... <clears throat> Okay. Uh, there they go. It's the hounds at the basket. Yeah, my, my it's dogs the midnight are bark. Very, very upset. Um, I. Uh, they're I, all water based. If that helps. All water based. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, I'll. Okay, going on what's water based and what I know didn't open with opening. Um, Oh, <laughs> Kylie, I think, got in on that one, too. So she's not going to be happy with that. Um, <laughs> if that picked up, which I'm pretty sure it did. I'm going to say the... Um, I'm going to say the riverboat. Yes. Do you know which one? <laughs> <Ugh. laughs> Remember, they had two. No, I I couldn't tell you. It's the Richard F. Irvine. Okay, so it was the second Liberty Square Riverboat. Okay, um, so Richard F. Irvine. Um, the I'll say the Swan Boats. Yes, the Plaza Swan Boats. And that's that's all I got. I can't okay. think of anything well, else. I would I would hang out in Liberty Square and Frontierland for a little bit. What else, sir? Uh, Tom Sawyer Island and Tom Sawyer Rafts. That was an opening. No. Huh. I, I well, I would I mean if if I would have thought about that, I probably would have went there. But I could have swore that was opening. No, uh, that whole swath of area opened late. Well, I'm not the smartest person out there. So. <laughs> it's fine. It's not like it's not like you visited that day, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, in 1973, <laughs> I was definitely there. I just had other things going on. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's like you were filming, you were videoing something else. Exactly. I was too busy. Uh, I was filming the rest of the park. I, I couldn't be yes. bothered with, with that. That's right. 
Okay, May 21st. Uh, this is sort of long. I, I, I'm painting a picture here. Um, actor, director, and writer Howard Morris passed away on May 21st, 2005. Now, since the early 1960s, he had been a main staple of the Hanna-Barbera production vocal team. So he did hundreds of voices for like the Flintstones, the Jeffersons, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Now, as a director, he was responsible for the classic black and white pilot of television's Get Smart, as well as episodes of Hogan's Heroes and The Andy Griffith Show, in which he was also known for his comedic role of Ernest T. Bass. But what is his Disney connection? I, I have no idea. Mm. He's somewhat, He's a character I actually really dislike. <laughs> so, Well, that doesn't uh, help. That's like I know, uh, it doesn't. 80% of them. No, and it's actually in a series I'm not particularly fond of. He was the original voice of Gopher in Walt Disney's Winnie the Pooh featurettes. Yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, but Ernest T. Bass was the Gopher. That's gotcha. The, so that's the reason I bring it up because I loved Ernest T. Bass, but um, that's just so bizarre to me. Because Ernest T. Bass would throw rocks through windows <laughs> in that Andy Griffith show. Oh, anyway. Um, May 22nd. The Indiana Jones Summer of Hidden Mysteries begins in Disneyland's Adventureland on May 26th, 2008. The same day as this long-awaited event. I'm assuming, just based on the year, that that was the same... uh, the same time that the latest Indiana Jones movie came out, the uh, awful Crystal Skull. Yeah, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I'm sorry, people. Yeah, I it, liked it at the time, but I also was an idiot. So I just kept thinking, where is this going, and where is when is it ending? <laughs> I just kept thinking. <laughs> I didn't pay for this. My parents paid for it. Oh, Why not yeah. enjoy it? But uh, anyway, this anyway this summer long Disneyland Indiana Jones Summer of Hidden Mysteries included a daily show, a collectible adventure map for guests with hidden clues, random Indiana Jones character appearances, and a new Indiana Jones themed photo location. I think this is the one that was really controversial. Um, first of all, it was cool because some of the show. It was almost like there was a, st- a chase show, and they were running along the, like the buildings. But I think this is the one that was in the old um, Tahitian Terrace. It, part of it, yeah. Uh, we actually and, once mm-hmm. met a person who bragged about being one of the Indiana Jones uh, uh-huh. characters for part of the show. He was very proud of it. Uh, well, so I think they him. shut. I think they shut this down <laughs> because uh, they had to rewrite the script. Because if I because I saw this with my children, I remember in Carol, and it was I think there was a scene where he actually like slaps or punches a woman who's a villain. Yes, and they that, did. That. Oh dear lord, that just started a whole huge controversy. May twenty third. What attraction soared to life in the Magic Kingdom on May twenty third, two thousand and one? This, guess based on the way you worded it, but I'm going to say uh, Magic Carpets. Yeah, Ma- the Magic Carpets of Aladdin. Based on the 1992 film Aladdin, guests uh, ride aboard one of 16 carpets or rugs surrounded by a giant genie lamp. Located in Adventureland, the attraction design is similar in concept to Dumbo the Flying Elephant. We had a talk about why Dumbo is superior just recently on the show. Um, The Magic Kingdom is the first Disney theme park to have the magic carpets of Aladdin. The second one will open in 2002 at Walt Disney Studios Park. Craig, did you ride it when you were there too? So you can say you've ridden, you know, almost all of them? Uh, no, I can't say that, but uh, it all started with you. You should have said which attraction started disappointing guests. <laughs> so that's kind of on. Uh, yeah. And then there was a third in 2011 at Tokyo Disney Sea. It actually works there because there's the whole Arabian Coast no. um, area. No. So 
it's not too bad. No, it there. doesn't work anywhere. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to say that without even experiencing it. Uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I won't mind if they decide to take this out, but they won't. Uh, oh, it, if anything, why not add to it? Why not make it worse than it is? How could they do that? <sighs> Leave it to Disney to find a way. Well, I, I was thinking as I wrote this question, they because I knew our, our conversation would go that way. I was thinking they could put Muppets in it. Sing, oh, telling okay. the story of Fair, Sinbad. No, no. I was see, and I was going to be nice and go the way of saying, okay, well, they can add an interactive element to it. Find some way to involve your iPhone into oh, it. Oh gosh, that uh, would be horrible. Uh, you know, With, we'll, of, we'll Smith the genie. We'll, we'll grant you know. We'll we'll come up and uh, you know tell you jokes or something on it on the phone. Okay, May 24th, which I think is opening day, isn't it? Of that film? Um, May 25th. Well, technically 24th uh, night previews. What um, 3D multiplayer game did Disney Interactive launch on May 24th, 2004? Not Aladdin. Um, I can say that pretty wholeheartedly. I'm not sure. Toontown Online. I don't remember this. I don't remember it either. I mean, because Virtual Magic Kingdom also opened in this week and closed. And that was a big one. But, um, yeah, Toontown Online. I don't... I have a feeling it wasn't very popular. Yeah, I don't don't remember remember it it. at all. Not even a little bit. Okay. And finally, May 25th, the Mickey Mouse film Mickey's Review, directed by Wilfred Jackson, is released on May 25th, 1932. Minnie, Pluto, and Horace Horsecaller help Mickey put on a big show. Which Disney character made his film debut in this cartoon short? I think it was... If I remember correctly... This would have been uh, Dippy Dog. That's right. Who later became... Goofy. Goofy, that's right. In March 1939, in Goofy and Wilbur, he became Goofy. But yeah, he's Dippy Dog in this. He's a an, an audience member who's very annoying because he crunches on peanuts during the whole show. So, okay, there we go. That's all there is for that week. Well, Craig, it's, it's 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 listening to Bob is always fascinating and entertaining. I'm I'm looking forward to next week when our our final installment of Bob answering more of our listeners' questions. Sad it has to end. I know, I know. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll have him back again <laughs> another time. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. But maybe I'll get a few questions in on on Sunday, May nineteenth during the bus tour so so craig until next time how can our listeners connect with you as always you can find me tuesdays on the walt disney world edition podcast and then throughout the rest of the week on the best and worst of walt disney world the disneyland edition podcast the universal edition podcast and always on facebook twitter and instagram at telecluster what about you michael well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Oh, and Craig and I were talking before the show with us traveling and the opening of Galaxy's Edge in a couple of weeks at Disneyland. There is a possibility that in two weeks we may not have a show because we just aren't going to be able to get together to record an episode. We will confirm that with you next week. But um, there's a chance, is it the May 31st show? We may we may be taking a break that day, just with 
with everything that's happening. Of course, and we always try our best to to Mm -hmm. just get it done and out of the way. Well, not out of the way. I don't want it to seem Mm -hmm. like that. We we try our best to get it completed and ready to go for you all, but um, it's going to be a hectic week. So even mm-hmm. if we do manage to get it done, uh, then we have to start worrying about it being released at a at a reasonable time. So we we have to step back and really look at whether or not it's it's entirely uh, possible to have it released and ready to go for y'all. And so we'll we'll let you know, but no promises. Until then. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.